Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hi, this is Tyler from the Free Thinker Podcast. Do you have an atheistic or a skeptical friend in your life who challenges you and your beliefs? Have you ever wondered about the passages in the Bible that talk about keeping slaves or about bears mauling children to the command of God? Or are you just generally interested in issues related to theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and apologetics? Well, if you're any of those, I would love to invite you over to the Freed Thinker podcast to explore some of our content that we have available. On the Freed Thinker, we engage in a philosophically robust manner with some of Christianity's most staunch critics. The Freed Thinker podcast is the place where freed thinkers can think freely. All right, so obviously I was not born in the 60s. I was born in the 70s. But I like classic rock, and there's probably a famous song from the 60s by the Rolling Stones. It's probably one of the Rolling Stones' best-known songs and probably their most famous songs Besides Jumpin' Jack Flash and other things, what's, what's the song that just really put the Rolling Stones on the map? I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try. I can't. So I can't get no satisfaction. That is the theme song, not only of the 60s, but I think it's the theme song of our age that we live in. Would you agree? I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try all these different things. And so I, I went and did a search this week on some of the top-selling books of all time that talk about the meaning of life. And I'm going to give you these topics and tell you what they're about, and you're going to want to run out to Amazon and order these, aren't you? So <clears throat> the first book that was really popular back in 2006 was called The Secret by author Rhonda Byrne, and this is what it says about her book. She explains with simplicity the law that is governing all lives and offers knowledge how to create intentionally and effortlessly a joyful life. Do you want to know the secret? Okay. On Oprah, which I don't watch, she has this guy for years. His name is Eckhart Tolle. And he has written a best-selling spiritual guide called A New Earth. And here's what it says about A New Earth. In A New Earth, Tolle expands on these powerful ideas to show how transcending our ego-based state of consciousness is not only essential to personal happiness, but also the key to ending conflict and suffering through the world. Tolle describes how our attachment to the ego creates the dysfunction that leads to anger, jealousy, and unhappiness and shows readers how to awaken to a new state of consciousness and follow the path to a truly fulfilling existence. Does that make any sense to anybody here? Okay, good. The other famous selling book is called The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Through conversation, stories, and meditations, the Dalai Lama shows us how to defeat day-to-day anxiety, insecurity, anger, and discouragement. Based on 2,500 years of Buddhist meditations mixed with a healthy dose of common sense, The Art of Happiness is a book that crosses the boundaries of traditions to help readers with difficulties common to all human beings. Okay, so we could go on and on about books 
that deal with the search for the meaning of life in all different types of places? What about movies that deal with the meaning of life? There's a lot of ones that are, that are very popular. You think about The Matrix. Anybody seen The Matrix? It came out back in 1999. It's this whole idea that um, you're really not sure what's real and what's not. And so Neo, the main character, is drawn into this world run by machines, and sometimes he's in the world and sometimes he's not. You're not sure what is really reality, if, if there's this computer programmer controlling everything. Anybody seen the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he goes into people's subconsciousness and try to solve crimes, and you're not really sure what's, what's real and what's not? The greatest modern movie on the meaning of life is probably Forrest Gump. Think about it. It traces his whole life, and he's running, and he's trying to find the meaning of life and all these different experiences. And then who could forget 2001, A Space Odyssey, with those opening words, or opening, not opening words, but opening chorus by Strauss, the Sprach Zasuthrasta. You guys know the 2001 Space Odyssey, the monkeys up there pounding, and some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So we've got books that deal with the meaning of life. We've got movies that deal with the meaning of life. And then you've got philosophers that deal with the meaning of life. Um, Albert Camus, he was a French author in the 1930s. He was part of this uh, philosophical movement. And here's what he said, quote, You will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you're looking for the meaning of life. Okay. And then Frederick Nietzsche, the guy that said God is dead, basically said that any search for meaning is useless, especially if your search for meaning has God as its center. It's useless. Okay, so we come into this room tonight with thousands of years of baggage with history and philosophy and movies and literature, and all of these people throughout the ages have been asking that age-old question, which is what? What is the meaning of life. And so tonight, when we come to Ecclesiastes, here's the overall question that the teacher... Now remember, what's the name of the teacher? What's he called? He's called the Kohelet. Okay, so in your Bible, it may say teacher, preacher. Um, It's the Hebrew word Kohelet. It means one who speaks in the assembly, one who preaches. Um, The word Ecclesiastes comes from actually the Greek word ekklesia, which means the the assembly or the body of believers. So the Kohelet, the preacher, i.e. Solomon, is going to ask this question, where do you search for the purpose and meaning and purpose in this life? Where do you search for it? What's the meaning of life? Now, remember, what was one of the key words that we looked at last week? There were two words, right? What was the first word? You guys remember? The ESV translates it vanity, but some of your translations may translate it meaningless. It can mean vapor, transitory, absurd, meaningless, useless, futile. The other word that shows up in the book of Ecclesiastes is the term under the sun. And we said that under the sun basically means a secular worldview without any reference to God. It's just life on this earth with no reference to God, a totally worldly, secular viewpoint. Okay? So here's the main point of this section in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 
verses 12 all the way, I mean, chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2. Here's the overall thesis. Here's the overall point. Since worldly pursuits are meaningless, find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food, drink, and work. Now, you didn't expect him to say that, did you? We'll see what he says. Worldly pursuits are meaningless, so find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food, drink, and work. Now, what's going to unfold before us is that Solomon is going to show us four experiments or four pursuits that he undertook to find pleasure, to find purpose. And all of these pursuits failed miserably. Okay? So let's, we're going to look at all, so here's where we're going. He gives us four experiments, and then at the end he gives a conclusion of what he learned. And all four of these pursuits for the meaning of life, for satisfaction, for, for purpose, all of these pursuits failed miserably. But he undertook them. So let's look at the first pursuit, the first experiment. Experiment one, the search for wisdom. And we'll talk about what type of wisdom he was searching for. This is more intellectualism. Okay? So let's turn to chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. Let's start in verse 12 and go through verse 18. And let's see this first experiment that he undertook for intellectualism, for wisdom. Okay? So here we go. I, the preacher, the Kohelet, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's the king over all Jerusalem. In verse 12, Verse 13, he tells us, I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom. Now, one thing I want you to notice about Solomon. Solomon is not an atheist. He acknowledges God. What does he say there? It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's not an atheist. Does Solomon know who God is? Who was his daddy? David. Okay. Solomon is not an atheist. He's not a lost person. He's not someone who does not know God. But here's the point. In these pursuits to find meaning in life, he is acting as if he is an atheist. Now, what does that mean? It means that he knows God is there, but he's acting as if God is not there. And so that's kind of even worse than being an atheist. Because at least an atheist is an atheist. He is an Israelite 
who's basically acting at what I would call a functional atheist. I know God's there. I know I'm accountable to God. I know God is my creator, but I'm going to act as if and live as if and think of as, as if God is not there, so I'm just going to functionally act as an atheist. And so in these four pursuits, in these four experiments, you have a man who knows better. He knows who God is, but he's acting as if he does not know who God is in, in this pursuit for the meaning of life. Okay? So, the first experiment that he does here is he tries to find satisfaction or purpose or meaning to apply his heart or mind to seek and search out wisdom without God. Okay? Now, what does Proverbs 1.7 say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So where does true biblical wisdom start? If you really want to be wise, if you really want knowledge, where does it start? With a fear of the Lord, worshiping the Lord. That's not the type of wisdom Solomon's going to seek out here. Actually, the word wisdom that's used here, that he's talking about in the original Hebrew, it basically just means simple knowledge, practical knowledge, intellectual pursuits. It's basically a worldly type of wisdom that is without God. Now, one thing we do know about God or about Solomon, is that did not God give him wisdom? Okay, so we're going to be turning to 1 Kings. So keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be, so we're going to be in 1 Kings and Ecclesiastes because we're going to go back and look at some biography here of Solomon to find out what he's talking about. 1 Kings chapter 4, 29 through 34. So 1 Kings chapter 4. First Kings four twenty nine through thirty four. All right, so here we go. First Kings chapter four verse twenty nine, and God gave, who gave it? God gave Solomon wisdom, and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. Now think about that for a moment. Breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. I mean, he had a lot of brain cells. All that sand. <laughs> so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, the Hem- and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. I have no idea who those people are, but he was smarter than them. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, was this a wise man? And who had given him this wisdom? God. In this first experiment, back in Ecclesiastes, he is going to search after wisdom, but not a godly type of wisdom. Instead of using his God-given wisdom, he's going to pursue a man-centered type of intellectualism. 
He's going to try to go to the ivory tower. He's going to go to Harvard and Yale and try to rub shoulders with all the intelligentsia to try to find out the latest and greatest ideas devoid of God. And what does he say is the result of that? Look at verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be be busy with. An unhappy business. Does anybody have a different translation besides unhappy business? Some translations may say, like, what did you say? A grievous task. Burdensome task. Yeah, really the word there can mean evil. Grievous, evil, burdensome. It's, it's woeful. It's not a good experience. It's not something to have to go through. And basically he says, you know, when I've tried to pursue wisdom without God, when I tried to be intellectual, when I tried all this stuff, he says there in verse 14, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. There's that word again. All is meaningless. It's absurd. It's a vapor. It's striving after the wind. Now, your translation will say, does your say striving? Anybody have anything different? Grasping. Grasping. Okay. Chasing, grasping. You know what the literal wording there is? Hurting. Hurting the wind. It's like he's... Have you ever heard, like, herded animals? Like cats? Herding cats. Herding sheep. In this agricultural society, Solomon says... Trying to pursue wisdom without God is like herding cats. It's a woeful task. It's a grievous task. It's frustrating. It's never ending. It's a striving. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, what happens when you try to herd the wind? Can you herd the wind? What happens when you, when you get the wind together? It just... You don't. It just poofs out. There's, there's no way you can catch the wind. So it's, it's in, endless frustration. Now... In verse 15, he gives a proverb. And and you have to kind of understand really what he's saying here. He says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What does he mean by this proverb? What is crooked cannot be made straight. I think what he's asking is this, and I may be wrong, but this is just a guess because I don't really know definitively what he's saying here, but he could say something like this. I have no idea why a tornado hits my house but then jumps over my neighbor's house on the same street. I don't know why my wife got cancer, but my best friend's wife is a 70-year-old chain smoker and she lives to be 80 years, you know, 100 years old or whatever. Why did my child get hit by the drunk driver, but the drunk driver didn't die? He's probably thinking, why, why, why do evil and crooked things happen that can't be explained? I don't know why these things happen. That could be what he's saying. What is crooked cannot be made straight. I don't understand why crooked and evil things happen in the world and, they, and you can't right those wrongs. I don't understand this. And then he says, what is lacking can't be counted. That's probably similar to um, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Now, one thing that always bothers me is when you watch the news and they supposedly have an expert on both sides. What do the experts usually end up doing? Screaming at each other, and they don't really sound that intelligent, do they? 
Have you ever met somebody that was so intelligent you had no idea what they were talking about? That they were just this highfalutin intelligentsia? And so I think what he's saying here is, listen, I've tried that whole intelligentsia, intellectualism, trying to rub shoulders with the scholarly people, trying to become one of the elite. I've tried all that. I'm the king. I've tried to, to do that. And he said, it's like hurting the wind. There is no meaning. Being smart without Christ really doesn't matter. And then in verses 16 and 17, he reminds us of what happened. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. I surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart had great experience and wisdom and knowledge. If there was anybody that had wisdom, it was me. I applied my heart to no wisdom, to no madness and folly. I perceive this is also a herding or chasing after the wind. For much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What's vexation? Does anybody have a different word? It's really like grief, anger, sorrow. It left him grievously frustrated, angry. So did his first experiment with wisdom satisfy him? What's he say? It just made me frustrated. It made me mad. It was futile. It's like chasing after the wind. So here's what we find out at the end of his first experiment. A pursuit of wisdom or education or intellectualism without God is meaningless. It's functional atheism. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring meaning. So Solomon says, okay, that's experiment number one. If intellectualism didn't satisfy me, I will go to something I know will satisfy me. So here's experiment number two, the search for pleasure. We would call this hedonism. Okay? Let's go into chapter 2, read verses 1 through 11, and let's see Solomon's pursuit of self-indulgent pleasure. If the first experiment failed... Maybe his second experiment will give him what he's looking for. Maybe he'll have that satisfaction he's looking for. So let's go into chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Joy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and promises. I've got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
if intellectualism and this pursuit of intelligence doesn't work, well, I'm just going to pour myself into unending, self-indulgent pleasure. So go back up to verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. The word enjoy there can really mean gloat or indulge. Gloat yourself. Indulge yourself. I said to my heart, okay, the first experiment didn't work. This next experiment, I'm going to go for maximum pleasure. I'm going to just maximize my self-indulgent pleasure. Proverbs 21.17 Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Now, let me just stop and address something here. You may be shocked when I say this, but let me finish the full statement. There is nothing wrong with pleasure as long as it's godly pleasure. Okay? God has not created us to be robots. God has created us to enjoy His creation, to enjoy things, but they have to be Christian experiences of pleasure. So God has made us to enjoy Himself and to have pleasurable experiences. But these pleasurable experiences need to honor Him and be within the confines He has ordained. Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's a sin to have pleasure as long as it's godly pleasure. Now, is anybody struggling with that statement? as long as it is within the confines of what God has ordained. So when you go stand before the Grand Canyon and look at it, well, I'm not going to have any fun because God says I can't enjoy this. I'm going to go out with my friends to Outback Steakhouse, whatever steakhouse you like, and I'm just going to get like asparagus, and I'm going to get like some kale, and I'm going to have some soda, water, and I'm just, that's what I'm going to eat. Why do you go out to eat so you can what? Enjoy food. And God has created us to enjoy with the senses. Now, when you take it to an extreme and when you indulge and when you abuse, that's where the problem comes in. And so um, God has made us to enjoy most of all himself. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence... This is talking about God. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. So God has created us to enjoy Him. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we have been created to enjoy. But that is not the issue for Solomon. It's not going to be a godly enjoyment. And then he says there in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. Now, laughter. Let's talk about laughter. God has created us to laugh, has he not? Is it okay to laugh? Is it okay to laugh at ourselves? Is it okay to go to a comedy club and laugh at somebody? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with laughter. We've been created to laugh. If somebody in this room were to slip on a banana peel and fall, I know my wife would laugh because she likes, she probably wouldn't. If it was me, she would laugh. There's just some things that are funny. 
Um, and they're not mean. We, we're laughing at ourselves. That's not the word laughter that's used here. It's a very specific Hebrew word that, that the writer of, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, uses. It really means scornful, mocking, derision, to crudely make fun of someone, to tell off-color jokes, to laugh in a wicked, evil way, to laugh at immorality. Proverbs 10.23 Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. If somebody does something immoral and you laugh at it and you're laughing with them, that's, that's the epitome of being what the Bible would call a fool. A fool. So let's look at this list of what Solomon has done to pursue pleasure. And it's a long list. Okay, so here's the first thing he experimented with. This is the big experiment, number two. Under this big experiment of pleasure, he's got a bunch of different pursuits of things that he did to try to maximize his pleasure. So let's look at this list that he gives of his, his um, pursuits. So here's number one. He experimented with alcohol as a way to deaden the pain of life. Now, look at what he says there. Verse Three, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, you will never hear me say this as your pastor. I will never say that drinking alcohol in and of itself is a sin. I, I don't think you can say that biblically because Jesus turned water into wine and I just don't think that you can biblically say mandated down that drinking alcohol in and of itself is a sin. What I can say is this. Getting drunk is a sin. And so you better be careful when you take that first drink how far it's going to take you. And so let me give you some proverbs here that talk about the dangers of getting drunk and strong drink. And by the way, I do not personally drink alcohol, and I do that, number one, for, two, for, for multiple reasons. Here's the first reason. The first reason is I do that because I do not want to be a stumbling block to anybody in this congregation that has struggled with alcohol or who, um, who would look at me and say, well, if Pastor Sean drinks, I can drink, then you go become an alcoholic. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. Number two, my extended family has been destroyed by alcohol, and so it's just a conviction of mine that I don't want anything to do with it because I've seen how destructive it is. And so that's my personal conviction. It's my pastoral conviction. If you decide to have a glass of wine with your steak and dinner, I'm not going to condemn you. If you have a beer with your friends, I'm not going to condemn you. For me personally, I don't drink because that's my conviction, but I'm not going to impose that upon you to say you can't drink. Now, if you get inebriated, and come home staggering drunk and vomiting at the porcelain god, let me give you some Proverbs about that. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Being led astray by strong drink. Proverbs 23, 31 through 35. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. 
They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. Your heart will utter perverse things. When you are under the influence of alcohol and drunk, what's in your heart comes out. And it may be perverse because you're under the influence. Ephesians 5.18 Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, clear teaching of Scripture that getting drunk on wine is a sin. With that being said, I do not think Solomon is getting drunk here. Because if you look carefully, look carefully at what he says there in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He's still sober. He's still lucid. He's not, this is not where Solomon says, hey, I'm going to have a glass of wine with my steak. And it's not where Solomon goes out and parties and comes home staggering drunk. This is what I think is, he's using alcohol as a means of self-medication to deaden the pain of life. He's not getting full-blown drunk, and he's not just having an occasional drink. He's trying to dull the, the pain of life by drinking. And so he's trying to self-medicate. So he, that's the first thing he tries to do. He's, he's still sober, I think, because he says, I'm still guided by, by wisdom. You know, he, now, he could be drunk. We don't know. It doesn't necessarily say he's drunk there. It doesn't necessarily say that drinking's a sin. Somehow he's using alcohol in an ungodly way to bring pleasure to himself. Because this whole context is ungodly ways to bring pleasure to yourself. Okay? So that's the first thing he does. Number two... He experimented with being a master builder. Look there at the beginning of verse 4. I made great works. I made great works. What did I do? Look how many times the word I and myself show up there. And and the ESV translates is pretty good because it's really, I made these for myself. So here we go. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He did all these great and mighty works. But I want you to notice two things about this, and I kind of alluded to it. Number one, these are all in the plural. Did you notice that? I didn't just build a house. I built houses. I built gardens, I planted vineyards, I made parks. Okay, so these are in the plural. And then number two, these are not for public use because he's a great philanthropist. The ESV gets the translation right when he says, I built these for myself. These are his own, this is his for his own estate. I'm building this just for me. I'm not building this for Israel. I'm not building this because I'm king and I want to be kind and provide parks and recreation for the public. He's not like the Walsh family that's done a lot of stuff in Sterling for the community. It's, I've built this for myself. I've built myself a castle, a moat for me. And what it looks like here is that he's almost trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. 
lush parks, gardens, a godless paradise. Now think about where this is. This is in Israel. It's a desert, arid climate. How in the world do you get all of this unless you do what? Master irrigation. He had to have some type of master irrigation system, some type of way to get the water to plant the parks and the trees and the lush um, gardens. And, and archaeology goes back and looks at all these lush gardens that Solomon had. So it could be he's basically saying, hey, Adam and Eve had it really good in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to create my own Garden of Eden, but I don't want God to be there. Now let's go to 1 Kings chapter 7, 1 through 12, and let's read a little bit of a biography here. 1 Kings chapter 7, 1 through 12. Let's see what Solomon built. Solomon builds his palace, is what my little uninspired heading says over 1 Kings chapter 7. All right, here we go. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. 13 years to build his house. Some of you are like, man, you know, one year is long enough. Um, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits. Now what's a cubit? About 18 inches. In its breadth, 50 cubits. In its height, 30 cubits. It was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and windows opposite windows and three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window and three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And then he made the hall of throne. Or he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was furnished with cedar from roof to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell and the other court back of the hall was like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones, cut according to measurements and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around it, and courses of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. I don't know what that house looked like, but they've gone to great lengths to describe the stones and the cedars and the pillars. And that's just one house. What did Solomon say? I built houses, and I built vineyards, and I built parks. And who did he build, who did he build them for? Myself. Because I want to maximize my pleasure. Okay? So he deadened himself with alcoholic drink. He built great works for himself. Let's look at the third thing he did. Back to Ecclesiastes. He gathered numerous slaves to serve his indulgences. Look there at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. He had slaves. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 4. I told you we'd be flipping back and forth. First Kings chapter 4, 20 through 24. Okay, so 1 Kings 4, 20 through 24. 
Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's about 200 liters. A core is about 200 liters. So what's that? About 200... Two liters? 102 liters? Those of you that are good at math. Somebody have something... Five metric tons. Okay. So this is one day's provision. That's a fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, fat and fowl, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipshpa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. One day's provision. That's a lot of food. Because who does he have to feed? Himself. And he's got all these servants to do what? Chefs and maids and waiters to do what? Wait on him to kill the oxen, to go to the pastured cattle, to get the sheep, to go get the gazelles, to to serve him venison, to cook it, to serve it, to give it to him. Plus, you'll find out in just a moment how many else he had to feed. We'll get there in just a minute. There's about a thousand other people, but I'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay. So this is, but that's one day's worth. So how many? That's just one day's worth of stuff. So we had to have enough servants to go out every day and get all these things together for himself. That's self-indulgent. Okay. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes, and but we're going to also be in First Kings. So keep your finger there. Number four, he accumulated great possessions. If you go back to chapter 2, verse, um, the second half of verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. So flocks and herds and silver and gold. Okay, go to 1 Kings chapter 10. And let's look at verses 14 through 29. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 29. And I want you to count, if you can keep track, how many times the word gold shows up. Okay, here we go. 1 Kings 10, 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests, and two lions standing beside the armrest, where with twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. 
Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, for the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Is this a rich guy? Did he accumulate for himself a lot? I built houses. I built vineyards. I got servants. I got slaves. I got silver. I got gold. All for who? Myself. Okay, now let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Let's look at number five. He surrounded himself with the arts. Look at what it says there in verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. Now, we read earlier that Solomon wrote about a thousand songs. Now, think about this. The text doesn't tell us, but maybe, just maybe, he got these singers to do what? Sing him the songs he wrote. It would be like Taylor Swift or somebody going and hiring singers to come sing to her her songs every day. Because I want to hear my songs. So he surrounded himself with singers for himself. And then what's the last thing he did? Number six, he experimented with maximum sexual pleasure. At the end of verse eight, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So let's go to 1 Kings 11. I told you we're going to be flipping back and forth. 1 Kings 11. And this is where you wonder about Solomon's wisdom. Okay. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away from your heart, turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had seven hundred wives who were princesses and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now you know where all that food was going to. A thousand women for one man. A thousand women. You remember a couple years ago when Wilt Chamberlain revealed in that book that he had, you know, had sex with whatever, like 10,000 women or something like that? Sexual immorality was not an issue for Solomon. It was sex without intimacy 
Can you really, can you really have intimacy with 10,000 different women? No, but you can sure have a lot of pleasure. And so he had his own harem. And so think about this man for a moment. Houses, slaves, music, gold, silver, food, women, wine. He's the king. I'm going to amass everything for myself to maximize pleasure for myself. And this is finally going to satisfy me. Now, most red-blooded 20-something-year-old men in America would say that is the life. If I can have sex with a thousand women and have all the gold I want and all the food I want and all the servants and all the rock music and, and all the stuff just for me and pools and parks and I can create, that is the life. And what does Solomon say about that life? His problem wasn't that he didn't have enough pleasure. Look at verse 9. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I even was better than my dad as far as riches. Also by wisdom remain with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. If I saw it, I got it because I'm the king. It's mine. It's for me. I found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Look at verse 11. Then, after this experiment with pleasure, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, all this building, all this gold, and, and behold, it was vanity. It's three things there. It was vanity. It was striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained. So pleasure seeking ended in three things. This hedonism. It was vanity. It was empty. It was futile. It was meaningless. It was absurd. It was again herding cats. It's striving after the wind. And then he said, I did not get any gain. What did it leave him feeling? Hollow. Empty. All of the sex, drugs, rock, whatever you want to call it. All of the pleasure that he could enjoy only left him feeling empty. It didn't satisfy. So his experiment number one with intellectualism and intelligentsia and trying to be smart didn't satisfy. Experiment number two of trying to get the maximum amount of pleasure sexually, food, gold, buildings, that did not satisfy. So let's go to experiment number three. The search for the benefits of wisdom over foolishness. This is what I call realism. So let's see what Solomon learns in this third experiment. So let's look at verses 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man, who, for what can the man do who, come, who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, 
for all his vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon says, okay, I want to do an experiment. I'm going to see what pays out in the long run. If I'm going to live life wisely, is it better? Does it pay off to live wisely as opposed to living as a fool? And what does he say? Yes, there are temporary benefits of living like a wise person. Solomon says, basically, a wise person can see. What does he say there? Um, Verse 13, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So a wise person is going to be going to have light is going to have a good experience the fool's going to walk in darkness now when solomon uses the word fool when the bible uses the word fool like in proverbs and ecclesiastes in the wisdom literature fool does not mean like a bumbling idiot that we think about like a fool it, uh, the word fool almost means someone who is morally bankrupt or spiritually blind so when you think of fool it's a person who makes unwise moral choices or they're spiritually blind And Solomon says, listen, to be foolish is to be spiritually blind. It does pay off to be wise. Um, Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So Solomon says, yes, it does pay. It does pay to be wise because it keeps you from spiritual darkness. But then Solomon discovers a taste of realism. What does he discover? Here's what he discovers. Both the wise and the foolish suffer the same fate. That statistic that affects one out of one people and is 100% accurate, they both die. So what's he thinking? Well, yeah, in my perspective, in the short run, it pays to be wise over being a fool, but... Why bother being wise when I'm going to die and the fool's going to die and we're both going to die? It doesn't matter. In the end, we're both going to die. And so how does he respond to that? Look at verse 17. I hated life. I'm really hating life now. Intellectualism didn't work for me. It left me empty. Pleasure didn't work for me. It left me empty. And now I'm wondering, does it really pay to to live a wise life because a foolish person is going to die? I'm going to die. We're both going to die. This doesn't make any sense. This does not satisfy me. I hate life. This is grievous to me. It's a striving after the wind. He hates life at this point. So he says, okay, there's one last experiment I'm going to try. If these three didn't work, let's just try one more experience. The search for gaining possessions. Now, we've already seen him amassing possessions, but this is a little bit different. Let's see the the take he, he gives us here in verses 18 through 23, this materialism. I hated, verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled. And use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. 
What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, all his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. What's he thinking? If I just work hard enough, I can pass on my inheritance to my kids. What if my son's a fool and squanders everything I worked for? So he hates the idea of working hard to amass all this wealth simply to leave it to some foolish children who will squander all that he worked for. I can't trust my inheritance to anybody. I've worked hard. I've worked hard. I've put in all this work. Look how hard I've worked. And when I die, I have no guarantee that all the work I did while I live is going to have a legacy because it could be gone just like that by some dumb child that goes and squanders it. So I don't want to do that. I can't leave my inheritance. So at this point, he is in what? Despair. Look at what it says there. What verse are we in here? Um, Yeah, verse 20. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. He's experiencing vexation. Verse 23. Sorrow. My heart does not rest. This emptiness of herding cats and running this treadmill has no lasting joy. Four experiments he tried to pursue did what? All left him frustrated, angry, despairing, hating life, empty, hollow. And here's the point he wants us to know. He's driving this point home hard. That's the point. The pursuit of meaning and purpose in life without God will leave you empty and frustrated and hollow. Is there anything wrong with pursuing intellectual pursuits and going to college and getting a degree? No. But without God, what's the point? Is there anything wrong with enjoying what God has given us as long as you do it under His rules? No. Is there anything wrong with walking in wisdom? No. Is there anything wrong with leaving an inheritance for your kids? No. The point is, is that those are not the places that you find your satisfaction. So he's going to say, all right, these four experiments have failed me miserably. What have I learned from them? So here's the conclusion. Verses 24 through 26. The conclusion. And this kind of may surprise you. It kind of surprised me when I was reading this. I'm like, man, all this decadence, and here's where he comes to? So it's the Scripture. So we will go with what the Scripture says. Verse 24. There is nothing better, nothing better. I don't, mean, I don't think he means like absolutely nothing better because we can think of more things better than what he's going to say here, like heaven and Jesus. But he says there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So where does true joy and satisfaction come? Satisfaction comes in the enjoyment of God's gifts of food, drink, and work. Now, did you expect that? Kind of takes you off guard, doesn't it? What he's saying is, is that a lot of times we are looking for some type of future in order to have the true meaning in life. Think about every stage of your life. When you were in 
elementary school, what did you think was the be-all, end-all? When I get to go to middle school. When you're in middle school, what's the be-all, end-all? I get to go to high school. When you're in high school, what's the be-all, end-all? I get to go to college and be on my own. Then it's like I get to vote, and I may get to get married, and then I may have my first job, and then I get to have kids, and then I get to retire, and then I get the kids out of the house, and then I then I get to die. I mean, it's like you're always looking for something in the future to give you satisfaction. If I could just work hard enough, if, if I could just get that next experience, everything's way out in the future, and God says, stop. Today, God has given you the gifts of food, drink, and work. Enjoy those as a gift from God. Because you may not think of work as a gift from God to enjoy. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you enjoy your jobs? Do you realize, here's one thing I need to tell you. Some people will tell you that work is a result of the fall. That's not true. Genesis 2.15 has work before Adam and Eve fall. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. Now, God ordained work to be enjoyed for His glory even before Adam and Eve fell. Now, with Adam and Eve's fall, it's made work harder. It's made it more sweaty of our brow. But God has created us to cultivate, to work, to enjoy work. We were meant to find enjoyment in our work. But when we take our hearts off of God's gifts and try to pursue worldly pleasures as opposed to the gifts that God gives us, that's where we get into trouble. And so God has given these things for our enjoyment. So you have permission from the Bible to enjoy a good meal with your family today. And when you eat that meal, when you say grace, you are giving God glory and acknowledging that He's the one that gave you that meal. Now, you didn't hear me say this, but I'll say it. Go enjoy a nice glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> Not me, because I don't drink, but if you, as long as you don't abuse it, or you can enjoy your favorite non-alcoholic beverage, um, like a Sprite, or a Capri Sun, or whatever. Enjoy. <laughs> And enjoy your work. That's the hard one. Enjoy your work. Now, Solomon describes two types of people here. Notice the two types of people he describes. You see those in verse 26. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given this business of gathering and collecting. The first type of person is the person that lives life with God as the center, those who please God by enjoying Him as the giver of gifts. The second type are sinners who pursue worldly pleasures that are only striving after the wind. He gathers and heaps up for himself. He's never satisfied. He's always seeking more pleasure, more stuff, and more experiences to bring satisfaction and is never satisfied. So instead of seeking worldly pleasures and all those four things, Solomon says, take a step back. God is sovereign. God is good. God is gracious. He's given you food. He's given you drink. He's given you your job. Enjoy it today. Don't just live for the future. 
like someday I'm going to enjoy life when I retire. Enjoy what God has given you today. Now, let's talk about some psalms here that kind of tell us to enjoy what God gives us. Psalm 90, 14 through 17. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What's what's the psalmist saying? God, satisfy me with your love in the morning. And when I go out to work, whatever that may be, would you establish the work of my hands? Meaning, let me find joy in the fact that you've given me the ability to work. Let me find satisfaction in my work. Let me do my work as unto you. Would you be my hands and feet today, Lord? I'm going to find joy today in work. Some of you are like, that's not what I needed to hear today because I had a bad day at work. God wants us to enjoy our work. Now let's look at Psalm 128, 1 through 2. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. Okay. Now let's go to the New Testament for a moment. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. And let's see what Jesus has to say about where we find satisfaction where we find comfort. Matthew 6, 25 through 33. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Very familiar passage of Scripture. All right, here we go. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of span to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory. Did we not look at that? Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So the lilies of the field that were created by God that he takes care of every day are more glorious than all the glory that Solomon had that we just read about. And notice what he says. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what's the first thing we're to seek? Food, drink, work, pleasure. Seek first the righteousness of God, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Find your pursuit, find your satisfaction, find your joy in 
Christ first and foremost, and He will take care of the rest. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink, did not Solomon tell us? Whether we eat and drink and enjoy the toil, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God. So when you eat, you're doing it for the glory of God. When you're drinking with your meal, you're doing it for the glory of God. When you're working, you're doing it for the glory of God. You are finding satisfaction in doing all things for the glory of God. Not for yourself, not for worldly pursuits, but for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, in word, what you say or deed, in actions, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So here's the bottom line. The sovereign God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to the believer who finds pleasure in God, not in the things of this world. Now, God is for your pleasure. I'm going to say that again. God is for your pleasure as long as your pleasure is in Him. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician who became a Christian, in his famous book, Pensées, which means thoughts, quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What's he saying? Whether you go to war, whether you avoid war, whether you commit suicide, whatever you do, the ultimate desire of man, he says, is to be happy. Would you agree with him? I'm hearing music. Do you agree that humans desire to be happy? Do you agree that God has created us to be happy? Yes. The question is not, has God created us to be happy? The question is, where do we find that? Do we find it in worldly pleasures or do we find it in Christ? Let me give you a couple of quotes here. C.S. Lewis said this. It is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. That's an interesting statement. It's your duty to be as happy as you can. Okay, C.S. Lewis. Let's see what John Piper has to say. We know that everyone longs for happiness. And we will never tell them to deny or repress that desire. Their problem is not that they want to be satisfied, but that they are far too easily satisfied. That's a good quote. In verse 26 back there of Ecclesiastes, for the one who pleases him, the word pleases there can also mean enjoys. The one who enjoys God in a good way will receive wisdom and knowledge and joy. So pleasing God. So here's a statement. How do you please God? How do you please God? You enjoy God. <laughs> what's the wrong question to ask? And we started out this, this lesson tonight with what's the question a lot of people ask? What's the meaning in life? What's my purpose in life? 
probably a better question we should ask is, how do I live a life that pleases God? Because it puts God at the center and it puts pleasing God. And the answer that the Bible teaches and the answer that Ecclesiastes hears, you please God by enjoying God. Okay, how do you enjoy God? There's a lot of answers to that question. (laughs) Read His Word. You enjoy God as the giver of gifts. And so we can say it this way. God has given us gifts that we can enjoy Him as our ultimate satisfaction When we follow Christ in holiness, we can enjoy Him as the giver of gifts. But what did the nation of Israel do? Jeremiah 2, 12-13 Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken water, are broken cisterns that hold no water. Now, Bob, you've mentioned this numerous times to me after a sermon. Describe to the class what a cistern is and how it worked in the ancient biblical times. We think of a well or cistern as, as one with a bucket, and that's it, it goes down. But in ancient times, they were much, much more than that. Remember, people lived in the desert, and so building and digging well was a big deal. And you had like several levels and you had houses built around this well inside the well itself it just wasn't a simple well yeah. so when they talk about Abraham building wells and that and other people and, and giving up is a big deal because it's like a house around a well yeah. and what's he saying there you've hewn out cisterns for yourself that do what what's the purpose of a cistern to hold water so that people can what Drink. So the purpose of a cistern is for you to collect water so that you can have a good source of drinking water. What's he saying here? You've dug out a cistern that has holes in it. It's broken. It's kind of muddy and gross at the bottom. And you're like taking a straw and sipping up the sludge from the bottom because you think that's going to satisfy you. Now, anybody here is going to suck sludge out of a straw? None of us would suck sludge out of a straw. That's a, like it sounds like a sounds like a like a tongue twister. Sally sucks sludge out of a straw on a Saturday. I don't know. I mean, something like that. So say that three times fast. Nobody here would do that. But think about the things that you do in your life that are equivalent to that spiritually. When Christ offers Himself as living water. And we fool ourselves into thinking that I can go suck through the sludge and that's going to give me satisfaction when Christ offers Himself as the fountain of living water. And the problem is, as John Piper would say, it's not that we don't have pleasures, it's just that we're we're satisfied too easily with the sludge and we're not satisfied with Christ. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen, I had all these experiences, all these experiments, they didn't pan out, they were failures, they didn't satisfy. The one satisfaction is to please God, enjoy God, and realize that today, in the context of this passage in Ecclesiastes, enjoy food, drink, and work as a gift from God. All right. Now we come to the time for questions, comments, and any other sundry thoughts that you guys might want to discuss tonight about this passage of Scripture. Or any other topic.
Ecclesiastes makes you think. Yes, you may, Jimmy. You didn't have to ask, but you may. Does anybody else have any? I have a light bulb going out where? Back there? Oh, is it flickering? Okay. Yeah. I was like, kept moving my Bible, so it was flickering when I was trying to read it. Trying to crazy. Any other questions? Yes, Bob. Uh, I was under the influence that Solomon wrote this in his later years in life mm-hmm. when he may have been, uh, uh, you know, cynical, and he wrote Proverbs for his middle years and maybe parts of Psalms when he was more young and enthusiastic. Is that something to cover? Um, that's one um, scholarly approach. There's a lot of debate over the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Like last week, we talked a little bit about the authorship. There are some modern-day liberal scholars that don't even believe Solomon wrote it. Um, I take it the historical view has been Solomon wrote it, and then he wrote it probably towards the end of his life. Not as a, I don't think he wrote it as a cynic. I think he wrote it as the preacher in the assembly, as a wise man that learned from his experiences, and he's given advice of all these things that he's experienced as a way to warn Israel not to go down the path he did and embrace this secular life under the sun. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes? You talked about alcohol. And yeah. Sometimes you run into people that say, well, weed is okay because if, if it wasn't, then God wouldn't have created weed. So what would you say okay. those Did you guys hear the question? This is the ultimate Colorado question. Every time I tell people I'm from Colorado, oh, you're from the land of Mile High City. Um, so the question is, okay, well, she called it weed, alcohol, marijuana, whatever you want to call it. Um, if God made it and God made everything good, then you should be able to, you know, smoke pot. Um, and that's, your question is, how, how would you answer a person like yeah. that? Well, the, yeah, here's the thing. Whether, well, all right, so let's talk about this for a moment. Everything goes back to motive and heart. And the question is, why do, why do people smoke pot? To what? To escape. To numb. To veg out. To disengage. Okay? Why do some people drink alcohol? For the same reasons. Why do some people binge eat? Okay. So you could say, well, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is sinful because I'm going to binge eat on it. The point is, what's your motivation for doing it? Do you do it? Can a person that's smoking pot literally, honestly, to the Lord say, I'm smoking this doobie for the glory of God? And all of you are like, you're laughing. You are laughing. So go back to that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So you have to ask yourself a question. Even if I'm drinking alcohol and it's one sip, can I truly say I'm doing this for the glory of God? My work. And my, so anything can be abused. I would say that the main purpose of pot is to recreationally disengage your mind and be under the influence of a substance so that you don't have to deal with the things of life. 
And it's a gateway drug to other things. And a lot of school teachers in here and others that are in social services and people that are in law enforcement will tell you that there's nothing good societal or, or in families that comes from pot. There's nothing really redeeming that's come from that. Well, poison ivy is natural too. God made it, but yeah. to go roll around. Yeah, to go roll around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enough said right there. <laughs> Enough said. That's a good. That's a good point. I thought I saw a hand back here. Yes, Betty. Whatever you do that is self-destructive. Yes. Is wrong. Yes. Or self-indulgent. And again, guys, it goes back to motive. I mean, you can. You you can you can. I could go to Little Caesars tonight and get five large pizzas and go home and eat my face out watching some crazy soap opera to drown myself because I went home because I was sad that, you know, we had a really bad class tonight. I don't know. It was something like that. That could be just as sinful as someone going home and smoking pot because I'm doing that as a way to numb the pain, deal with feelings of whatever, and I'm not glorifying God in that. Yes, ma'am, my wife. Yeah. I just like to say this, though. Okay, most people that are going home and eating all those pizzas might still be feeding their kids. Where the experience that I have had with parents that abuse recreational drugs, their kids are not getting fed. Their kids are not getting help with their homework at home. Their kids are coming to school having not bathed for a week. So eating your face up, like eating five pizzas does not affect the family the way that that sure. drug would. So I think just having to think about it, because now I am probably going to just put myself out there and say I'm probably pro-medical marijuana if it's necessary, but because I've seen not help people when they're in like end-of-life stages, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So I'm not totally against, I'm not trying to judge people there, but I have seen the negative effects of Drug abuse, it might not just be marijuana, but drug abuse, I've seen what it does to kids. And so if we can't think past just me, okay, it might give me a stomach ache or make me feel a certain way, but what is it doing to the rest of my family or people around me? That's what needs to happen when people start thinking about what is it that I'm putting in my body. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Yeah, I mean, opi- opium is a natural drug that comes from poppies, and that creates heroin, that creates oxycodone, and I mean, there's there, and then cocaine's a natural from. So I mean, there's a lot of things that are natural from the earth that can be manufactured to be abused. So, yeah, good, good, good question. Opened up a good can of worms. Um, you'll have some interesting discussions on the way home. About any other questions? Huh? We've got about five more minutes, or so we can we can let you go. Is there any any other questions tonight? All right. Well, next week we're going to jump into chapter 3. And so if you want to read ahead, that'll be cool. Let's pray. And then if you do have more questions, whatever, I'll be hanging out up here afterwards. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, we, we really do see uh, the futility of, of seeking self-indulgence, uh, whether it's in pleasure, whether it's in trying to um, do things without you as the center, um, 
Lord, and we may not have gotten as, as, as despairing as Solomon at times, but Lord, we do see that life without you, life without finding satisfaction in you, life without enjoying you is meaningless. And so, Lord, if we get anything from this, help us to leave realizing that our ultimate joy, our ultimate purpose, our ultimate meaning comes in you. And Lord, I pray for this group of people that tomorrow when they go to work, or maybe some even go tonight, uh, they would do that for your glory and that you would establish the work of their hands and they would find joy um, in the work that you've given them to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.